What are they biting on might be as important as where is their biting. I'm talking about fishing. Uh, I grew up in a fishing family. Even from the Twin Cities, uh, when I was an elementary boy, my dad would bring my brother and I over to Tomahawk in my elementary days, and we would fish and fish and fish and fish and fish. And, and uh, if you came to my house now, one of our bathrooms is decorated as a fishing bathroom, and one of the decors there is a fisherman's ruler. It looks like this. The first three inches say throw back, and on the other end it says keeper. That's how fishermen's roll. If you ask where they're biting, you might hear things like, well, they're biting in Lake I Forgot or Lake Secret. But the other thing that fishermen probably will share with you is how they're biting or what they're biting on. They may say things like a jig or a bobber with a worm or a rapala with a tail, a spinner with a tail. Those are called lures. And the thing that's interesting about a lure is that they have a barb, and that barb hooks on fish. We're lured. You may say, how in the world does this connect with the message today? Well, the key word in this sermon today is temptation. And the word temptation also means to lure or to entice. Now, you can see that in the Bible that the word temptation can mean one of two things. It can mean to entice or to lure to do evil or to test. And just to be up front right away, the book of James, James 1.13, tells us that God tempts no one to do evil. No one to do evil. There are times of testing, though certainly that are recorded in the scriptures. Two of the most famous ones would be the book of Job and then our friend Abraham who was tested in giving up, sacrificing his son, Isaac. The key word is temptation, to lure and to entice to do wrong, to harm, to do evil, to do destruction. And even ponder this. Think about this right away. True or false? Only things that are evil can become means of temptations. True or false? Only things that are evil can become means of temptation. How about success and wealth? Can that be a lure? Can that be an enticement? Of course it can. Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer, he uses what's called the Hebrew parallelism. And why that matters is this. It's two things that are connected together. And in this prayer, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but, and the next part is, but deliver us from the evil one. So what we're going to focus this morning on is just this little phrase called, lead us not into temptation, but. And what we're going to try to understand from Jesus' prayer and through the scriptures, we're going to try to understand this, that temptations come, temptations overcome. Those simple things. Temptations come, temptations overcome. Now for some help in trying to understand this, we're going to look at a quote from Luther's catechism. I'm going to have you read back to me what we put up on the screen. Luther wasn't the only one who wrote a catechism. There's other beautiful catechisms as well. But what he did popularize was he did popularize a question-answer format. And the reason why he did that was his intent was to help his students or his hearers or, yes, children understand. So in other words, it would be a way of 
what did you hear me say? A way of repeating back. So this is what Luther writes for what does it mean to lead us not in temptation? And this comes from Luther's catechism. And can we get the next slide that's up there? There we go. Thank you. Let's read this out loud together. What does this mean? Let's read. But God tempts no one to sin, but we pray in this petition that he would so guard and preserve us that the devil, the world, and our human nature may not, oops, may not deceive us nor lead us into error and unbelief, despair, and other great and shameful sins. But when tempted, we may finally prevail and gain victory. So here's where we're going to go. Right at the beginning of this message, we want to understand what are the realities of temptations? Like something that we can all say, yup, yup, that's true. And then because that's true, where is hope? And we see hope even with temptations in a comparison in a comparison specifically in one who lived a life that I could never live or that you could never live. And finally, as we leave this place and we scatter, we've gathered, now we're going to scatter soon, where is hope? Like, what are the truths about temptations? If temptations come, what's the truth about temptations overcoming? And then at the end, I want to give you a picture that's been really helpful to me. So as we think about temptations coming and temptations overcoming, this is the first reality. You will battle temptations till your last breath. You'll battle temptations till your last breath. In fact, the minute or the second you became a child of God, whether that's accepting Christ or being baptized in Christ and growing in Christ, there was a battle going on. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Paul later goes on to say this in Romans chapter 6, 13. Don't present yourself as an instrument to be played for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those bought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You will always battle temptation. You always will. You see, this temptation, or excuse me, this petition is a little different than the other petitions. I've used this model. I've used this model for a long time because each plank is a template. You can drill down and think and pray and ponder each of the petitions that come. But the first five petitions are all present. Their verbs are all present. Hallowing. That's going on right now. Letting your, your kingdom come. Kingdom coming is happening right now. We may not see it, but it's happening. Will be done. Our Father's will is happening in our world. That's present. That's now. Daily bread. Sustenance. That giving us our daily bread. That's happening now all the time, all the time, all the time. So if you took a microscope, you'd see this, and it ends with, forgive us. Forgive us for what we've done. 
and help us to forgive other people. All, all those first five petitions are all present. Why does that matter? Because in the sixth petition and the seventh petition, it's what's to come. It's what's coming. It's what's coming. It's in the future. It's when you stand up and leave. That's why it matters. Sin is as close as your skin. So the question is, how does Satan tempt you? Satan tempts me by trying to deceive me into distrusting God. Satan tempts me by trying to deceive me into distrusting God. So where's the hope? Where's the hope? If, if temptations come, how can temptations be overcome? This is where we find our hope, friends. This is where we find our hope. Our high priest, Jesus, was tempted in every way. Say that back to me. One, two, three. Ready? Every way. One more time. Ready? Every way. How? I don't know. He was tempted in ways that we won't ever be. And I am grateful for that. I hope that when you hear that and you ponder that for just a minute, just for one second, you will get the idea that you care. He knows. He understands. He gets what we've been going through. We'll look at a very famous temptation that Jesus had. But what hit me this week was Jesus was tempted throughout his life in his public ministry. He was tempted throughout his life in his public ministry. His good friend Peter said, don't go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Don't go. And Jesus' response in Matthew 23 was, get behind me, Satan. He couldn't deny the cross. Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he talked to our Father, and he said, is there another way that this could take place? Do I have to drink this cup? He could have denied that, but he didn't deny the cross. When he was arrested in the garden, kissed on the cheek, paid for with a slave's purchase, he could have been tempted. In fact, he said, I could call a legion of angels down. But he did not deny the cross. And finally, when Jesus was on the cross, there was mocking going on. And listen to the satanic, occultic hiss of the enemy that said, if you are the Son of God, if he's the Son of God, he's always been the Son of God. Come off the cross and save yourself. He did not deny the cross. Temptations come, and temptations are overcome. So let us pray. Will you bow your heads with me? Our Heavenly Father, the book of Hebrews 4 tells us, now we know what we have. We have Jesus, the great high priest, with ready access to you. Let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a high priest who's out of touch with our daily reality. He has been through weakness and testing. He has experienced it all, all but sin. So that gives us confidence. Confidence to walk right up to him and get what we 
are, he is so ready to give. We pray that we would receive this mercy and we would accept the help, the anointed help of the Holy Trinity. Jesus, you are Savior and you are also our friend. You get temptation, you get enticement, you get luring like no one else ever can or ever forever will. You endured the cross. You physically and bodily and supernaturally rose again. You're our hope. You're our victor. You're our help. You are our debt payer. Open our eyes to see what you have done and where we can find courage and confidence and strength and hope. And all God's people said, amen. Yes, amen. Remember, tempt remember temptation realities. Until your last breath, you will be tempted. And Jesus gets it. In every way about every temptation, he lived what we can't. So take courage. Take courage in those who are tempted. First, we have this comparison. We have this comparison and this important point, perfect persons in a perfect place is no guarantee against temptation. Let me repeat that again. Perfect persons in a perfect place is no guarantee against temptation. I'm talking about even Adam. Perfect people. Perfect people. They were in the Garden of Eden, a place of beautiful, pristine glory and wonder. And, and good scholars say that when you look at Genesis chapter 3, expand it out into Genesis chapter 2, because it, when they say they were naked and unashamed, it means that they were innocent and open, and there was no shame. And at the end of a great temptation, at the end of a great temptation, they fled, and they covered themselves. So the question is, how does Satan tempt us? Satan tempts us by trying to deceive me into distrusting God. So listen. Listen to this famous, famous account in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say, Genesis 3, verse 1, did God say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but did God say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of it? And you must not touch it or you will die. You will die. You know what was interesting? I'm not sure about you, and I've said this before. It's just, the Word of God is just amazing, isn't it? I mean, you read it, and you go, was that, was that in there before? Did I, why did I not catch that? And that's what happened this week. Uh, if you look at verse 5, verse 4, of Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, it's easy to go southern on this. Because in the word, in verse 4, it says, you will not certainly die. The proper way to interpret that is to say, y'all. That's the proper way. Because every time the word you is used, it's the second person plural. So a correct interpretation of verse 4 is, you got it, y'all not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when y'all eat it from, from it, y'all eyes 
will be open, and you all will be like God, knowing good and evil. The idea is he's not just speaking in an occultic way to Eve, but to Adam. And we know that because look what it says in verse 6. Who was with her? And here is the temptation. Three temptations, if you look for it. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it because he was in the y'all. So here are the three things. She saw food. Food's good. Can I get an amen? Bacon. Ribs. Nachos. Broccoli. I threw that last one in there just to make sure you were listening. She saw that and it was good. And then she saw it was pleasurable. And that means beauty. When you see a woman, a bride on her wedding day and she looks gorgeous, doesn't she look beautiful? Of course she does. When you see a sunset and a sunrise or the leaves in western Wisconsin, is that not beautiful? Of course it is. And then she wanted to be wise. And don't we celebrate wisdom? When someone graduates or there's a commencement, we have parties and go, woohoo, way to go. He took the, they saw it was good. Temptation disguises and catches us off guard or takes us by surprise. And John Milton's classic called Paradise Lost said this, earth felt the wound, nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe that all was lost. Newsflash, we would have done the same thing. Why do I know that? Because we give in to temptation every day. We don't trust his word. We don't trust his character. We give in to the same things. And we hide. Think of the clothing that we have. We hide. And then in Genesis 25, we get a little bit better. We pretend. We see Esau and Jacob, Jacob getting the blessing, he puts on fur, he, hide, he pretends. And then if we're really good, we act religiously and righteously, hoping that our good outweighs our bad. We hide. But where's the hope? If temptation comes, what about temptations overcome? So here's the second point. A perfect person with a perfect mission is no guarantee against temptation. A perfect person named Jesus with a perfect mission to rescue you and me is no guarantee against temptation. Our Savior, my best friend, lives like I can't and I'm not able to. The Apostle Paul calls this person, perfect person, the second Adam, or the, the last Adam, the life-giving spirit, the Lord of heaven, the image of the heavenly man. The new Adam is the one that endured everything that hell could throw at him. 
So Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is a comparison, an encouraging comparison for how we live on a daily basis. Mark chapter 1, verse 13, just kind of gives just a short little opening that's helpful, and it says this. It gives us the idea that the temptations that we read about Jesus in the desert, the temptations lasted all 40 days. And we just get the last dialogue as told to us by Jesus. Satan comes in some kind of form. We don't know how, but he uses all his occultic power seen in all three temptations. Don't miss this. The temptations of Jesus was this. Take a shortcut. Don't go to the cross. Take a shortcut. Don't go to the cross. And he kept coming back and coming back and coming back. We just don't read it in Matthew chapter 4 and say that's the last time Jesus was ever tempted. No, the book of Luke, chapter Luke, Luke 4.13 says, and he left him and he came back at an appropriate time. And the idea was this was just one of many times the Lord Jesus, our King, our Savior, our friend, was tempted. Now, Matthew chapter 4 is an entire temptation, uh, in, excuse me, an entire sermon on its own. We're just going to focus on, on the second temptation now. But the great Frank Gabeline, who's a wonderful Christian commentator, said, don't miss the irony of the temptations. Don't miss the irony of temptations. Jesus is hungry, and yet he feeds 4,000 or 5,000. Jesus will not turn stones into bread for himself, yet he offers his body as the bread of life. Jesus himself is the king of Messiah, king and Messiah. He doesn't have to prove anything. In it, he washes and takes the form of a servant. So how does Satan tempt you? How does Satan tempt Jesus? The same way. He tries to deceive the Son of God by not trusting his father. The second temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 through 7, if you want to follow along, says this. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 says this. The devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. We're in Jerusalem, very high place. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And if you have the NIV translation, or if you're looking at one of the pew Bibles, you'll see a little D there, and that, that is a reference to Psalm 91, verse 11 through 12, and he leaves out some of the psalm. Hmm. Illusionary good. But Jesus answered him, and he said, it is written... You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Listen to what Jesus said. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, at the beginning of this message, I said there's two different ways that you could see the word tempt. The first way is through trials. That's not the way that is being used here. 
The second way is for enticement. That's what I've been trying to explain as we look at this. What does it mean to not be led into temptation? What are the realities? What are the comparisons? What are the truths? But Jesus actually introduces a third way of understanding test. And if you have an NIV copy there, there's a little E that's right there. And if you look over, it says Deuteronomy 6, 16. It's a reference to a brand new generation of something that's happened in the past so that it would not sin like what happened in Massah. The book of Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And so there's a reference to not only what Jesus says in Deuteronomy 6, 16, but a reference even further back to Exodus 17, 1 through 7. What happened in Exodus 17, 1 through 7? The people of God grumbled. They quarreled. They complained. And the key verse from Exodus and what Jesus is getting to is written in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, when the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is Yahweh among us or not? That's testing. In this way, it means an unwarranted degree to test appropriate boundaries set out for someone. Can you drive 120 miles down East Hamilton right here? Of course you can. It would be stupid. It would be wrong. We have apartments and condos and baseball diamonds and soccer fields. Could you do it? Yeah, you could. But it would be wrong, wouldn't it? Jesus is saying, don't tempt the Father. Don't test the Father. For both Israel then and Jesus now, miracle demanding of the proof of God's care is wrong. The appropriate attitude is trust and obey. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to provide. But he will. He's my father. The person who is saying this is the second person of the Trinity who's always loved the father with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all the time. And he uses scripture to interpret scripture to take the dark, and to see it in the light. He overcomes with this word. He is a father, and you can trust him. How he's going to provide, I'm not sure. What he's going to do, that is his call. But he is a father, and he can be trusted. Lead us not in temptation, Temptation comes, temptation is overcome. We see it in Jesus. That's the comparison. So where is the hope? Here is the hope. But listen to this transition. How would Jesus respond with someone who is caught right in the middle of sin? How would he respond? The book of John, John chapter 8, though argued, if it's in the original manuscripts or not, fits with the person and conduct of who Christ is. Fits with that. There's a woman caught in adultery. She's thrown down in front of Jesus, and just her, not the man, they were both supposed to come, are thrown down in front of Jesus and said, this woman has been caught in adultery. Should we stone her? The 
one who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Then Jesus says something that came across my desk this week, and it's like, wait a second, wait a second. That makes a lot of sense. Jesus turns to the woman and says, where are your accusers? They've all left. And then Jesus makes this comment. Listen to this. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now listen. If you reverse that, go and sin no more, neither do I condemn you, you lose the essence of Christianity and the person of Christ. He is the one who has come for the sick, for the lonely, for the rejected, for the dirty. And condemnation comes on him. Condemnation comes on him. And when he receives our condemnation, he gives us the Holy Spirit. So then we will change. Dallas Willard in his beautiful book, Divine Conspiracy, says, the cross assures us that no one will ever get to heaven and say, I merited this. Never. So give me hope, Pastor Kirk. We're talking about temptation. Give me hope. If I didn't give you hope, it'd be like going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Can you imagine going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and everyone saying, hello, hello, hello? There's no hope for you. The whole point of that the whole point of that is to get help and to change. So here are the truths. You have been given the anointed resources of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Trinity, excuse me. Temptation overcome. You have been given the anointed resources of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to give you a bunch. I'm going to say these way too fast because this is an entire, another entire message. Okay? But here they are. You're going to get a cramp in your hand if you're taking notes. I hope we're still friends. First of all is this. God has given you, I'm going to give you eight of them right now. God has given you his holy word. Pastor Brian just shared with us just in this service. There's all kinds of life groups. They're listed in your bulletin. Read and study God's word with other people. Read it. Consume it. I hope this isn't the only word study Bible study, word intake that you get all week, God's given you his word. Number two, pray and ask, and it could be in that study that God gives you what I call garden friends. Jesus had three garden friends, Peter, James, and John, that you can bear your soul with and you can confess and receive absolution. Number three, the holy resources of the Holy Spirit is in you. God has given you his Holy Spirit we had the privilege of uh, having our grandchildren and our daughter with us this week. Julie and I are tired. Uh, we had a wonderful time, but they had a little CD that was in the van that we played all the time, and it was a Jeremy Camp song, and it went like this, and I thought, I love this song. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave. My grandkids are listening to this. The same power that commands the dead to wake lives in us lives in us the same power that moves mountains when he speaks the same power that can calm a raging sea 
lives in us, lives in us. He lives in us, lives in us. He's given you his Holy Spirit who seals you like a ring. Number four, he's giving you the gift of prayer. I hope that this series that we've been on, I hope it's encouraged you to double down on your prayer life. I hope that you have new patterns of prayer. You're invited at 745. There's a group of us that pray. It's not a big group, but you're invited to learn to pray with other prayers. God's given you that. God's given you the gift number five, the armor of God, Ephesians 6. Question, friend, do you put the armor of God on every day? The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. He's given you resources and gifts. Find your gift. Find your spiritual gift. Find the way that God has shaped you and use it. Number seven, he's given you the beautiful gift of worship and music. If I came into your vehicle, if I came to your house, if I look at your Spotify, if I look at your playlist, what's the music that celebrates your soul? My wife's family has just changed my life on that. And number eight, he's given you the disciplines of grace. Fasting and solitude and stewardship and giving. It's not so much how much sin I'm allowed to get by with. But it's more, the life of Jesus is so good. The shalom of Jesus is so good that I don't want to lose that. And the great sin would be to stop wrestling as you battle until your last death. That would be the great sin. So here's the last one. Any victory is directly tied to Jesus. Over temptation, any victory is directly tied to Jesus. Now, this is the Lord's Prayer. It's found in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus also prays what's called the great high, excuse me, the great high priestly prayer in John 15, 16, and 17. It's his prayer for his disciples, prayer for us. But he culminates it with this beautiful verse in John 16, 33 that says, in this world you'll have tribulations. And then he goes on to say, so good luck. He doesn't say that. <laughs> He's my best friend. I can tease him. He doesn't say, so in this world you'll have tribulations. So be more religious. Be more committed. Good luck. Try harder. He says, I've overcome the world. The word overcome is a beautiful word. I love the word. It's the word in Greek called Nike. Like the swoosh, like the shoe, the word means victory, not second place, not participation medal. It means victory because I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Let me encourage you with just a beautiful gift. On the backside of your bulletin, there's a devotional from Jesus Always by Sarah Young. And in the second paragraph, it says this, it's important to lean on me when you're feeling inadequate or overwhelmed. Remind yourself that you and I together are more than accurate. To sense my nearness, hold out your hand. Just hold out your hand right now. Try closing your hand as if you're holding on to mine. For I take hold of your right hand and I say to you, 
Don't fear. I will help you. That's true. Amen.